The title of our message today is The Risen Lord's Final Instructions. The Risen Lord's Final Instructions. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 24, verses 33 through 53. Let's go ahead and read the passage together. Luke 24, verse 33. And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. And they began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of a broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple praising God. This will be our 108th expository sermon in the Gospel of Luke. And we come to a conclusion. We started in November of 2013, so almost three years later, the Lord has brought us full circle And I don't know about you, but for me, this has been a very rich study. Luke, I think, is my favorite of the four Gospels. And I've enjoyed especially all of the wonderful parables that we've seen in here. But we come to the final section in Luke's Gospel. And we come to the final words of Jesus Christ, his final instructions to his disciples before he ascended back to heaven. Normally, don't we think about someone's final words as having special significance Like if someone is dying or on their deathbed and they're trying to tell you something, you'll lean your ear down and you'll catch those words. You might even write them out because you think, boy, these are important. This is what he wanted to say right before he died. I went online to search out some of the famous last words of some famous people. And I found some of these pretty interesting. The famous last words of Winston Churchill before he slipped into a coma were these. I'm bored with it all. That's what he had to say. Queen Elizabeth of England said, All my possessions for a moment of time. 
Andrew Jackson, one of our presidents, said, Oh, do not cry. Be good children, and we will all meet in heaven. No doubt he was talking to his children that were crying when he was about to pass away. General Stonewall Jackson, in 1863, during the Civil War, he was shot by his own side in that war. And he was in and out of reality during this time. He said this, Let us cross over the river and sit in the shade of the trees. Edgar Allan Poe, Lord, help my poor soul. I thought that was especially good. Good prayer to pray as you're slipping into eternity. George Washington, I die hard, but I am not afraid to go. Louis the Fourteenth, why do you weep? Did you think I was immortal? Harriet Tubman, swing low, sweet chariot. I like that one. Swing low, sweet chariot. Alfred Hitchcock, one never knows the ending. One has to die to know exactly what happens after death. Although Catholics have their hopes. Interesting. Isaac Newton. I don't know what I may seem to the world, but as to myself, I seem to have been only like a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself now and then and finding a smoother or a prettier shell than the ordinary while the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. Isn't that interesting to say as you're about to pass away? But you know, all of those famous people and all of their famous last words pale into insignificance compared with the importance of what the Lord Jesus had to say before he ascended to heaven. We have various great commissions given the church in the various gospels. Matthew has the most famous one, but Luke has his own version of the great commission. And we're going to be looking at that today. Now, in our last two studies, we've seen the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, haven't we? The reality, the certainty of it. We find that on Easter morning, the women went to the tomb. They were bringing spices because they thought that they were going to embalm the body, prepare it for burial in a proper way. And when they got there, what do they find? It's gone. The tomb's empty. And they didn't know what to think until an angel appeared to them and said, why are you seeking the living one among the dead? He's risen. He's not here. And they run back to the 11 and they tell them this. And you remember how the 11 respond? They didn't believe. They said, this is nonsense. Come on. What, what fairy tale are you trying to push over on us? But then later that same day, there are two disciples, not part of the 11. These are extra disciples. One was named Cleopas, and we don't know the name of the other, but they're traveling to Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. And they're talking about all of the events that have been going on during that last week in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, a stranger walks up and begins talking to them. And he says, so what are you discussing on the way? And they tell him. And partway through that discussion they're having, he says, oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did you not know that the Christ had to suffer and then to enter into his glory? And he opened their minds to understand all of the Old Testament scriptures and how they all had to be fulfilled in their Messiah, the Christ. Later on, they finally got to their destination in Emmaus. And this one who is the stranger, instead of being a guest in the home, takes the position of the host and he breaks the bread and he starts giving out the bread and prays for it. And in that breaking of the bread, their eyes are opened and they recognize him for who he is. And then he vanishes 
out of their sight. And they get up and they run. They race all the way those seven miles back to Jerusalem because they were so excited that they have actually seen the risen Lord. They get back to the other 11 disciples and they share their experiences. And they said, oh, we know because he's also appeared to Simon. And while they're sharing their experiences, Jesus himself appears in the room with them. And Jesus says, well, first, they're startled and they're afraid when they see this. They think they're seeing a spirit, some kind of an apparition. And Jesus says, no, it's me. Come and touch me. Touch my hands. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. Look at the nail prints. Touch my side. It's me. And then he says, do you have anything to eat? <laughs> no, I don't think Jesus was hungry, but I think he wants to prove he's not a ghost. He's not a spirit. So he takes a piece of broiled fish and he eats it in their presence so they can see this is a real, live, flesh and blood person right in our midst. So the reality of the resurrection is beyond all doubt in the minds of the disciples by the end of Easter Day. They know that Jesus is risen. What we want to do in our study this morning is focus primarily on verses 44 to 49, the final instructions of Jesus Christ to his church before he ascends to heaven. And there are three important truths I want you to see from this study. Number one, the necessity laid upon the Savior. Number two, the necessity laid upon the sinner. And number three, the necessity laid upon the saint. They're all here in this text. First of all, the necessity laid upon the Savior. Look at verse 44. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. Now focus on that little word must. It's the Greek word day, D-E-I. It carries with it the idea of necessity. Divine necessity. This has to happen. All the things written in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, which is the whole Old Testament scripture, these are the three delineations of Old Testament scripture, prophets, Moses, and Psalms, all of those things concerning the Messiah must be fulfilled. They have to be fulfilled. There is no possibility that they will not be fulfilled. Now, Jesus here is referring to God's sovereign plan for the Christ, for the Messiah. God had a sovereign plan of what Messiah would do when he came into the world. Those things, those scriptures that he would fulfill, these are things that God has predestined before time. Jesus Christ comes into the world to fulfill those things that the Father has already preordained and predetermined before the creation of the world. Now, what are those things? Well, look back at verse 44. I'm sorry, it's verse 46 I want you to look at. So, the, all the things written in the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms that have to be fulfilled, he explains what they are in verse 46, saying, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. Now, if he's going to rise again from the dead, that means that he didn't just suffer, he also died. So, what are those things in the Old Testament predicted about Messiah? He's going to suffer, he's going to die, and he's going to rise again on the third day. 
this actually is the substance of the gospel. If you were to take the biblical gospel and boil it down to its irreducible minimum, you would come away with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, that's what the Apostle Paul does when he tries to give a definition. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 is about the closest we have to an actual definition of the gospel. Let's take a look at that. It's 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you... Now, what's he doing here? He's explaining the gospel of verse 1. Now, he's going to explain it in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance... The gospel is of first importance. What I also received, that Christ also died for sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So when Paul says, what are the historical events that mark this biblical gospel? He says they consist of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. All of that according to Old Testament scripture. The substance of the gospel. Here, Jesus is telling his disciples that these events, his sufferings, his death, his resurrection, had to happen. They must take place. This is the necessity laid upon him when he came into the world. He had to suffer, he had to die, and he had to rise again on the third day. Now, let's ask ourselves this question. Why did Jesus have to die and rise again? Why was it a must? Why was it necessary. Well, there's two reasons that I could think of. Number one is because it was God's predestined plan that it would be that way. Remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was crying out, he was actually crying tears. And he said his soul was in agony to the point of death. And he he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I will but thy will be done. And he found out through prayer that it was not possible. Now, what did he mean? If it's possible, let this cup pass. If what's possible? Well, if the salvation of sinners is possible, but it was not possible. And then over in Luke, he says, Father, if you are willing, let this cup pass from me. But he found out God was not willing to let the cup pass. Because God had already set in motion this plan that had to be fulfilled. Go with me over to the book of Acts. There's two passages over there that I want you to see in this light. First one is Acts chapter 2. We're going to break into Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. We're going to break in in Acts 2.23. Peter says, this man, referring to Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So godless hands put Jesus to death. The people that crucified Jesus are guilty and culpable before God. 
for doing what they did. It was godless. It was wrong. It was sin. But at the same time, he was delivered over by a predetermined plan and by God's foreknowledge. Now here you've got these two tracks. God's sovereign plan and man's responsible will at the same time. Those sinners are responsible for crucifying the Son of God, yet God had set the plan in motion and nothing was going to stop it. Right? Look over at chapter 4. Now here we have Peter and John. They've been released from jail. They come back to their the disciples and they're holding this prayer meeting. And we're going to break into their prayer in verse 27, Acts 4.27. This is part of their prayer. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. You see that? The cross was predestined. Now, when I say predestined, I mean it was fixed. Nothing could stop it. Nothing. Because it was God's plan. Before the creation of the world, before man even fell into sin, there was this purpose of God to redeem sinners. So the fall was part of that predestined purpose. It had to be. Because God has elected in Christ from Ephesians 1.4. He has chosen in Christ from the foundation of the world, those who is going to save. So the fall was part of that sovereign plan. And then the cross and the resurrection of Jesus were also part of that predestined plan. So why must Jesus die and rise? To fulfill God's predestined plan, number one. Number two, to save sinners. Because this is the only way that sinners can be saved. Let's just think through in our minds again man's plight. He's condemned under God's righteous law. Right? Does anyone here disagree with that? Every person in this world is a sinner. They've broken God's holy law. As a result, they stand under His condemnation. Ephesians 2 says that they're a child of wrath. God's holy, righteous indignation, we call that His wrath, will be poured out upon all sin. The Bible says the soul that sins shall surely die. The wages of sin is death. And we're not just talking about physical death. We're talking about eternal separation from all of God's loving and gracious presence. Not His wrathful presence, but His merciful, gracious, loving presence. And eternal separation from that. The wages of sin is eternal separation from God's love, grace, and mercy. So you've got this picture, don't you? Of all mankind desperately in need of something that can save them. They can't save themselves. There's never been a human being saved Jesus Christ who has ever perfectly fulfilled God's law. Perhaps if one of us could perfectly fulfill God's law, we could save ourselves by our works. But nobody can do that because we're all fallen. And so here you've got the situation. You've got all mankind under the wrath of God. All of them deserve eternal death. So either all of mankind must die and perish, or someone else must take that death for them. Someone else must substitute himself in their place. 
And that's exactly what God designed from the creation of the world. That he himself and the person of his son, which is mind-blowing even to consider that, (laughs) God himself comes into this world in the person of the son to become the substitute for lost, hell-bound, condemned sinners under his holy, righteous wrath. And then on the cross, he absorbs in his own person that holy fury of God against our sins. And he pays in full the punishment that we have earned and deserved ourselves. That's why Jesus said, Father, if it's possible, let the cup pass. But it wasn't possible. You and I could never go to heaven. You and I could never be forgiven if Jesus Christ would not drink the cup of the Father's wrath. So, the necessity laid upon the Savior was he must suffer, he must die in order to make atonement for the sins of his people, but he must also rise. If Jesus Christ had not risen from the dead, how would you and I ever know whether his death really was good enough to save us? I would always have this big question mark in my mind. Well, I'll trust, but I really don't know if it's going to work or not. But God knew that we needed some assurance. And so to give us the assurance, he doesn't leave his son lying in the grave. He raises him up and he causes him to appear to his disciples so that they know his his sacrifice was accepted by God the Father. And paid in full, God accepted that as a satisfactory punishment for the sins of those who would be saved. And then, because he is raised, he now can ascend to the right hand of God, and he can take the position of our high priest, and he can intercede for us. So that all that Christ purchased, none will be lost. All will come safely into God's heavenly kingdom. So why must Jesus die to atone for the sins of mankind? Why must he rise? To prove that that sacrifice was acceptable to God, and also to take the place of our high priest so that he can intercede that we would all be brought into God's presence, every single last one of us. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I should lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. So there's the necessity laid upon the Savior. Now let's look at the necessity laid upon the sinner. Back in Luke 24, and this time verse 47. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So what is the necessity laid upon the sinner? Do you see it there? What must he do? He must repent. If he would ever be forgiven of his sins, he must repent. You see the connection there between forgiveness of sins and repentance? You can't have forgiveness of sins without repentance. And if you've really repented, you will have forgiveness of sins. Those two, they're they're couplets that go together. They're inextricably bound together. Today there is, I believe, a false teaching in some parts of the Christian church that says a sinner does not have to repent to be saved. All you need is simple faith in Jesus. And the well, they would say, maybe he repents, but we'll just define repentance as just changing his mind. Okay? 
And that's actually what the word repentance means. Metanoia, it means to change the mind. But that's what the word means. It came to have, in its biblical meaning, it came to have a definition much more robust than simply to change your mind. Because repentance has not to do only with the intellect. It has also to do with the emotions and the will. The word repentance means to turn. You might even say to turn loose of something. It means to turn around. So, the sinner, what he must do, he must repent. Repentance can't be divorced from faith. You, you say, well, you don't really have to repent. That's, that's a work. And we can't be saved by our works anyway. So, repentance does not factor into your salvation whatsoever. It's just simple faith in Christ. The fact is that repentance and faith are bound together just like repentance and forgiveness. You can't have real saving faith without repentance, and you can't have real gospel repentance without faith in Christ. Both of those things go together. Notice here, Jesus says, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. So when we talk about repentance, we're not telling people, just stop sinning. And you'll be saved. Just stop sinning. And I've actually gone on YouTube and watched some of these outdoor street evangelists, sometimes at major college universities, and their message is this. Stop sinning. You never hear the cross. You never hear about what Christ accomplished in his death, burial, and resurrection. Their message is stop sinning. And they're all against abortion. They're against homosexuals. Um, they're, it's everything they're against. Folks, that's not, that's not what we're talking about here. That's morality. Morality can't save anybody. Stop committing one sin, it's going to pop up in another direction, right? It's like that game where the head pops up and you smash it down and then it pops up in another place, right? You stop drinking and then it pops over here with pornography. You pop, smash the pornography, it comes up with profanity, you know? <laughs> We're sinners. We need a new birth in order for these sins to be crucified in our lives. So it's in His name. So this repentance that we are proclaiming is in the name of Jesus Christ. So along with the call to repentance is also the declaration of what Christ has accomplished in his death and in his resurrection. And because he has achieved and obtained eternal salvation, we call people to receive that eternal salvation. And the gospel way of receiving it is through repentance and faith in him. So it's in his name. Now, let's talk a little bit about repentance. It does mean to change the mind, but really the essential meaning behind it is to turn, to turn around, or to turn loose of something. It's like a little boy who goes out into his backyard, and he wants to go fishing, and so he's got his shovel, and he's digging up all these worms, and he's got his hands full of worms, and his rich grandfather shows up. And his rich grandfather says, I've got a present for you, little Billy. I've got all these old, rare, precious gold coins that I want to give you as a gift. Now, little Billy's got his hands full of worms. What's he going to do? If he wants that precious gift, he's got to turn loose of the worms. He can't hold on to the gift that his grandfather has for him. And we've got our hands full of the worms of sin. And if we want salvation, we've got to turn loose of that to have this other thing that's much more precious. You see? You can't receive the gift of eternal life unless you're willing to turn from those things that have so absorbing your life. You see, here's the deal. Before we're born again, we don't even see the value in the gospel. 
We don't see the glory in Christ. We don't see the beauty in the Savior. We're blinded to all of that. And so what we are seeing, what the, the glorious things that we see are money and sex and drugs and alcohol and amusements and all these other things of the world, the trinkets of the world. When God causes us to be born again, he shines his light into our hearts to give us the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And we see the beauty of Jesus. And then we see the, the, this sin that I thought was so precious. It's like ugly old dirty worms. What am I holding those in my hand for? We drop those things and we grab on to Jesus for all it's worth, for all he's got. So that's what repentance is. Repentance is turning from the old and turning to the new. It's like if Jesus is over there and our whole life we've been walking this way, repentance means we stop dead in our tracks and we turn around and then we come to him. So repentance is turning around and faith is coming to Christ. But you see, you can't come to Christ unless you turn around. And you won't turn around unless you're going to come to Christ. Those two things are, go together, do you see? So never divorce in your thinking repentance and faith as though one is optional and the other is necessary. Both are absolutely necessary for you to go to heaven. If you're going to be saved, you must repent and you must believe in Jesus Christ. You must turn from those old sins that so captured your heart. You must be willing to let go of them if you insist on holding on to your sins, you'll be damned. I don't care if you believe in your head that Jesus died for you on the cross and rose from the dead. I don't care. If, unless you repent, you will not be saved. Repentance is not optional. Now, friends, let me just show you some passages that show to me this truth, that it's absolutely necessary for salvation, that I'm not just making this up. Okay, this does come out of the Bible. Acts 2.38, what is Peter's message when he comes to his punchline on his, in his sermon? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent in order to have the forgiveness of your sins, he says. Or Jesus in Luke 13.3, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise what? Perish. Or that famous passage that we have in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You will perish unless you repent. That's... That's biblical. That, that God's word is clear, I think, on that. I hope, I hope you can see that as well. Now, f folks, this will affect how you witness. This will affect how you preach the gospel. If you believe that a person must repent in order to be saved, it will change the way you witness for Christ. I have heard many people say, all you have to do to go to heaven is just accept the Lord. Where do they find that expression in the Bible? Accept the Lord? I've heard that hundreds, probably thousands of times. I've never found it once in my Bible. Or if you want to have your sins forgiven and go to heaven, just 
invite Jesus into your heart. Well, that's also nowhere to be found in Scripture. What are the biblical expressions that talk about a person being saved? Repenting, believing, being converted, being born again. These are biblical expressions. These other things, we've just made them up. And they give a false impression. Accepting the Lord, the Lord has to accept you. It's not you that accept Him. (laughs) He's got to accept you. Yes, we do invite Jesus Christ to become the Lord of our life, but it's because He's already at the back door and He's got the key and He's opened it up and He's already been tinkering in our hearts. So, it's going to affect the way you preach. When, when you're witnessing to somebody and you're telling them how they can be saved, we dare not leave out this element to make it easier for them. That's why we do it. Because it becomes uncomfortable when we start talking about repenting for sin, doesn't it? If we know that that person we're talking to is living with his girlfriend, what I do is I address that subject. <laughs> and I'll tell him, I'll tell him, you can be saved. You don't have to go to hell. You don't have to pay for your sins. God has graciously provided salvation for you. But you can't go to heaven if you're going to remain in this living relationship with your girlfriend. Because that's not repentance. Repentance is turning away from the old life of sin. And if you're just going to go on living in that life of sin, you haven't repented. Or if someone's living in a homosexual lifestyle, you'll have to tell them the same thing. You can be saved but you can't go on living in that lifestyle. Or if they are abusing drugs or getting drunk on a daily basis or whatever, they're, they're abusing drugs and alcohol, you're going to have to address that and tell them you're going to have to repent of that as a lifestyle if you want to be saved. We're not teaching morality. You know, We're not saying give up drugs or give up homosexuality in order to be saved. We're saying that you can't have Jesus if you want to hold on to that. You got the worms in your hand. Turn loose of the worms if you want the best gem and the best diamond of all. So it affects how we talk to people when we are witnessing to them. I remember a situation in our church years back when um, a young woman started coming to the church and she wasn't a Christian, but she was interested. She wanted to learn what the Bible had to say. And Debbie started to meet with her and discipling her. And they had several studies. It went on for weeks. And she was gaining an understanding of the gospel. We all thought, oh, this is great. In fact, we all thought she had been converted. But the problem was that she was living with her boyfriend. And Debbie did talk to her about that and said, if you want to follow Christ, you're going to have to repent of fornication. You, you can't go on just living with your boyfriend as though that was okay. Jesus is Lord. And unless you're willing to submit to him as your Lord, you can't have him as your Savior. And Things like that. Anyway, the bottom line is that that was too much for her, and she left. She left the church. She left the relate the discipling relationship, and we have never seen from her since. But you know what? Jesus was okay with that. When all the crowds were coming to him in Luke chapter fourteen, he didn't say, "Great, look at all these people, wonderful." I better make sure I don't say anything not too offensive to them. He said some of the hardest things that he ever said. He said, you have to give up all your possessions if you want to follow me. You've got to hate your family. You've got to be willing to deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me if you want to be my disciple. Jesus didn't play the game of trying to get people in the door through the easy route. He told them exactly up front what it was going to cost them to be a follower of his. And if we're to be faithful ambassadors for Christ, we need to be honest with people. 
I, I'm thoroughly convinced one of the problems in the church today, at least in America, I don't know what it is overseas or in other countries, is that we we're so concerned about driving people away that we don't tell them the truth. We don't tell them about repentance. We don't tell them about judgment. We don't tell them about hell. We just don't talk about those things because it makes people uncomfortable. Well, you know what? Jesus wasn't afraid to make anybody uncomfortable. Jesus was an uncomfortable person to be around sometimes. He would, in the midst of the Pharisees, he would call them snakes, whitewashed tombs. I mean, and that there's love personified, talking to someone and telling them, you're a snake. You need to repent of your hypocrisy. So folks, if you're to be faithful to Jesus, tell people the truth, all the truth. Nothing but the truth. And just let the chips fall. See, if we believe that God is sovereign and saving whom we will, we don't have to worry. We don't have to think that if we just say it this way, somehow we'll get him in. If you just tell him the truth of the gospel, the Holy Spirit can go to work with that truth and he can bring people into his kingdom. So there we have the necessity laid upon the sinner. He must repent. And then thirdly, we have the necessity laid upon the saint. Back in Luke 24, look at verse 47 to 49. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The phrase I want you to zero in on is in verse 48. You are witnesses of these things. Now, what things? The things he's just gotten done talking about. His sufferings, his death, and his resurrection. And that they were to proclaim repentance for forgiveness in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are to be witnesses of all of those things. Now, what is a witness? Notice Jesus doesn't tell them that you are judges or you're the jury or you're the prosecuting attorney. He says you're witnesses. Now, a witness is somebody who testifies to something that they have seen or heard, right? Something they have experienced. Jesus says you are witnesses. I want you to testify to that which you have seen and heard. They saw Jesus crucified. They saw him raised from the dead. They're to go out and tell the world of what they had seen. Notice also that verse 47 says how they are to be his witnesses. They are to proclaim repentance for forgiveness of sins. Proclaim. Proclaim it. He doesn't say you're to share it or you're to discuss it or you're to debate it, you are to proclaim it. I think we need to, I think we need to, when we're speaking to someone about their lost condition and how to be saved, I think we need to speak with authority. The word for proclaim here is the same word for preach. And you know, you can preach to one person just as you can to 1,000 people. <laughs> you proclaim the truth that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. You proclaim to them the truth that He has died for sin, 
that he's resurrected from the dead. You proclaim the truth to them that salvation is only in Christ. You proclaim the truth to them that if they repent and put their trust in him and follow him, they will be saved from sin. Now, yes, sometimes there is more of a casual talking to somebody, but we ought not miss this element of speaking with authority because these things are verities. They're truths that cannot be denied. Notice the scope of their witness. Verse 47 says that they are to proclaim it in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Now, what kind of people lived in Jerusalem? Jews. Who are all the nations? Gentiles. Basically, it's it's the New Testament emphasis that the gospel is not just to the Jew. The gospel is to the Gentiles, is to all the nations. All humankind under heaven should receive this gospel. That's why we support missions. Because we believe, verse 47 of Luke 24, that this message needs to be proclaimed not just to Jews, but to every person in the world. If the person is breathing and has a heartbeat, then we need to proclaim this message to them. It doesn't matter their skin color or their nationality or where in the world they live or their age. None of that matters. They need this gospel if they are to be saved. So that's the scope. What about the secret of their witness? Verse 49 Behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The secret of their power to be witnesses was the promise of Jesus' Father. When they received the promise of the Father, he said, you are going to be clothed with power from on high. They might have thought, Lord, how are we ever going to proclaim in your name this message to all the nations? We're just 12 guys, or actually 11 guys. How in the world are we going to do that? This is a big world, and we're only 11 people. He said, I'm going to, the Father has made a promise. The promise is his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. And when he does, you're going to be clothed with power so that when you proclaim this message, it won't just be one human being talking to another. It's going to be God speaking through you. That's the only explanation we have for the day of Pentecost. Right? 3,000 people are converted in one sermon. And before that, Peter is denying his Lord three separate times. Now he's changed into this lion, (laughs) this bold lion, and people are falling under the power of the preaching. Thousands are converted. Power from on high fell upon Peter. That's the explanation for Pentecost. And if we're ever to do any good in the world, we need the same power from on high. Now let's go to Acts chapter 1, because the end of Luke dovetails with the beginning of Acts. Did you know that Luke is the one who wrote Acts? So you could call the Gospel of Luke, Luke 1, and the book of Acts, Luke 2. It's like Rocky 1, Rocky 2, Rocky 3, Rocky 4, right? This is Luke 1 and Luke 2. So go to Acts chapter 1, and you're going to see all of the main themes in Luke 24 show up again in Acts chapter 1. Uh, Let's pick it up in verse 4. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem. Doesn't that sound familiar? Don't leave the city until you're clothed with power from on high. He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said you heard of from me. For, 
Now, this is the explanation of the promise of the Father. Do you want to know what the promise of the Father is? He'll tell you in verse 5. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That's the promise of the Father. The baptism with the Holy Spirit. The immersion with the Holy Spirit. Now, there's all kinds of different views that Christians have about what that is. I don't know if I want to start going through all the views. <laughs> no, it'd take way too long. Another sermon. But basically, suffice it to say that what they needed was the Holy Spirit's powerful presence empowering them to make this proclamation. And when they had that powerful presence, people will come to Christ. Verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, clothed with power from on high, and you shall be my witnesses. There's the theme from Luke 24 again. Both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Notice the connection between this power of the Spirit and witnesses. Do you see it there in verse 8? Shake, nod your head yes if you see it. <laughs> Good. Okay, there is, a, there is a biblical connection between the power of the Holy Spirit and being a, a witness to Christ. Sometimes we put all the emphasis on speaking in tongues. You know, if you just get the Spirit, you'll speak in tongues. Or you'll be able to heal the sick. Or you'll be able to do miracles. Well, I'm not denying any of those things. But I'm saying the biblical connection we see here is not those things. The biblical connection here is being a witness for Christ. It's proclaiming the gospel in His name. And that's what we see as we go through the book of Acts. Go over to chapter 4 of Acts. Take a look at verse 8. Peter and John are brought before these very important bigwigs, these Jewish authorities. And it says in verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, these very important people who could probably kill him if they wanted to, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are in trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be named... Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. Now, I'd say that's pretty bold speech. Here's a guy who was denying his Lord when a servant girl questioned him, and he's transformed into this bold, lion, fearless preacher when he talks to the most important people in Israel. Wow! And it happened when he was filled with the Spirit. Now go to verse 31. This is that same prayer meeting we read about earlier. Verse 31 says, When they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the Word of God with boldness. My friends, do you want to speak the God, Word of God with boldness? You need the Holy Spirit if you're going to do that. If we're not filled with the Holy Spirit, we're going to have the hardest time trying to witness for Christ. That's the secret of their power, right there. You say, well, how can I have it? How can I have this 
how could I be clothed with power from on high? Well, I think there are at least two things that need to be present in our lives. Number one, we need to repent of all sin that grieves the Spirit. Ephesians 4 talks about grieving the Holy Spirit. And we grieve the Spirit when we go on living in known sin. The Holy Spirit has pointed out sin to you, and you just go on doing it, rather than repenting of it. So if the Holy Spirit has shown you a sin in your life, repent of that sin. It could be anything. Anything that He's put His finger on and said, that's wrong, you need to change that, stop doing that. You're grieving the Spirit if you will not repent of that. And then the second thing is you need to ask for the Holy Spirit. You say, Brian, why would you say that? I already have the Holy Spirit. I can't even be saved unless I have the Holy Spirit, right? Right, that's true. But Jesus says, if you then, this is Luke eleven thirteen, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Now, this is not a sinner asking for the Holy Spirit because he talks about your heavenly Father. Someone who's in a covenant relationship with God. He's the Father, you're the Son, kind of a thing. So here's a child of God praying to his heavenly Father, asking for the Holy Spirit. You say, why would you do that? You already have the Holy Spirit. Yes, but I don't have the fullness of the Spirit all the time. I leak. (laughs) I might have been filled once, but I leak. Don't you? Would you say that you leak sometimes? You're more filled at some times than other? You have more boldness at some times than other? It's because the presence of the Spirit is not as uh, invigorating and as powerful in your lives at one time as He is at another. And so we need to repent of all sin, and we need to ask God, fill me up! I'm going to be talking to this person today, Lord, and it's going to be a waste of time unless you, you fill me with the power of your Holy Spirit. So brothers and sisters, we... This is the secret of power if we want to see people come to Christ. There it is. There is no substitute for it. You, you say, well, we'll just have rock concerts. That'll get him in. We'll just have, we'll just have gospel concerts and we'll have gospel films and we can come up with all of our gimmicks we want to, but unless we are personally filled with the Holy Spirit, forget it. Just forget it because that's how God draws in his people. So we need to be on our faces before God pleading, Lord, fill me. Give me your Holy Spirit in a greater measure today. I need the Spirit to do what you're calling me to do today, Lord. So that's the necessity laid upon the saint. To be a witness for Christ in the power of the Spirit. To proclaim repentance for forgiveness of sins to everybody. Not just Jews, but also Gentiles. The necessity laid upon the Savior to die and rise again. The necessity laid upon the sinner to repent. The necessity laid upon the saint to be a witness for Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now go back to the book of Luke 24, and we're going to look at the last concluding verses. Verses 50 to 53. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple praising God. There's three things I see here. First of all, Jesus blessing his disciples. 
he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. Maybe it was that, like a, a priestly blessing, like the end of Numbers chapter 6. We have a priestly blessing. Well, Jesus is blessing his people. He's going to be leaving them, and so he prays a blessing upon his people. But you know what? We need his blessing too. It's not just them. We need the blessing of Christ, the favor, the empowering, the rejuvenation, the inspiration, the motivation of Jesus Christ upon our life. We need his renewing in our life. So first we see him blessing his disciples, and then we see the disciples worshiping him. While he was blessing, verse 51, he parted from them, and he was received up into heaven, and they, after worshiping him. Have you ever heard people say, well, I believe Jesus was a great man, but he certainly wasn't God. Well, the disciples didn't. Funny that they didn't know that, right? Because they were monotheists. They were Jews. They believed there was one God, and yet it says they worshipped Jesus. This is one of those texts that we can just kind of blindly go right over without noticing. Wait a minute. These disciples were absolutely convinced that Jesus was God. Otherwise, they never would have worshipped him. They would have known that that would have been blasphemy to worship anyone other than God. So they're worshiping Jesus. And then thirdly, I see here that they are experiencing great joy. But I think the sequence is important. First of all, Jesus blesses them. As a result of his blessing, they worship. See, we don't worship to get God to bless us. We worship because he has, right? And as a result of this worship, what do they experience? Great joy. That's the first thing we saw this morning, right? In Psalm 92. Joy accompanies worship of God. I want to encourage you folks. Christ has already blessed you. I mean, my goodness. He saved you from hell. Eternal hell. He's already blessed you. Worship Him. And as you do, you will also experience great joy from that relationship of worship and praise that He's given to you. So I encourage you to seek him today. Fellowship with him. Receive more, even more blessing from him. Worship him and find joy bubbling up in your heart as a result of that relationship with your Savior. Lord, I do pray that you would seal these glorious truths to our heart. Probably most of us here, Lord, would be in the category of the saint. And so we pray that you would help us to be faithful witnesses to the death and resurrection and salvation that's in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to not be cowards. Help us to not freak out because of the fear of man and refuse to say what you want us to say. Lord, help us to be bold like Peter. No matter what happens, no matter where the cards fall, just to tell people the truth. We pray, Lord, that you would help us as a church experience that power from on high. Lord, we're asking for the, a greater measure of the Holy Spirit upon us, upon us collectively as a church body. Lord, we want to reach lost people for Christ. We want to see people be made into disciples of Jesus. But we recognize this morning we'll never do that without that supernatural power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, make us more desperate in prayer. Lord, stir us up to pray for a greater measure of the Holy Spirit. We pray that this might be true of us, Lord. And that as you set up opportunities for us, 
Lord, that your spirit would just fill us in that moment and give us the boldness we need to proclaim him above all. In Jesus' name, amen.